The following is Voices of Experience radio show and podcast. No promotional fees are paid by authors or other guests who appear on the show. If you have comments or suggestions, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. On with the show. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, and as usual, we have the co-host here, Eric Crema, and uh, he hosts Spotlight on Success. And Eric, I actually don't know who you're talking to today, so <laughs> I'm going to learn with the audience. Well, thank you for welcoming me. Uh, it's Sergeant Darren Wright. He is Public Information Officer for the Washington State Patrol, and we're going to be talking about securing your load. You hear that all the time on, uh, not all the time, but you hear it enough that it's disconcerting that things will fall off of a truck and then not only create litter, but sometimes fly through the windshield of somebody driving behind that truck and e- injuries or even death in some cases happen. So uh, we want to talk about that, some of the initiatives they're doing to, again, clean up our highways and clean up people's act. Well, that's very needed. Looking forward to hearing that, really, because I'm driving down I-5 tomorrow. There you go. I'm also going to be talking to a couple authors today, not also, but I am going to be. And one is Angie Thomas, and she's an award-winning author. And she wrote a book called The Hate You Give Us, and it's actually going to be made into a movie. She's an extremely delightful person with a wonderful personality, and I really enjoyed the interview, and I think you will too. And then Kelly Hargrave, she wrote a book as well, and it's called Can't Get Enough of Sharks, Hmm. and it's directed towards children. I just kind of want to lighten up the show a little bit. She talks about the myths and realities of sharks, and again, this is directed towards children and grandchildren. It's full of jokes and just very lighthearted book. I got to peruse through it. And I recall my beginnings, not so much beginnings about sharks, but what really influenced me was Jaws in 1975, Steven Spielberg's movie. And I was petrified of sharks after that. I don't think I went into the lake for like two years. (laughs) Same here. Like, I wouldn't even go into Lake Washington. Right. I I didn't (laughs) care. And I mean it. And I talked to her about that. Was that movie influential like it was on me? And we got it delved into that. And I thought her answer was very interesting. Hmm. The one hit wonder today, it's not Elvis, but the singer of this week's one hit wonder sounded so much like Elvis Presley that many people to this day even think the person who sang this song is Elvis Presley. Interesting. The only hint I will give is that it's from 1964. You know, that must have been like a blessing and a curse at the same time. It's almost like when you're typecast, you know, and you can't get another role in the movies. If you sounded like Elvis, but there already was an Elvis, how much work were you going to get, you know? Exactly right. Hmm. So another announcement, Eric, I want to let people know that we've discussed this off air and we want to get people's input about what they think about the show, what they like about it. What would they like to see us do? And, um, The number to call would be 425-653-1166. And if you're the fifth caller to leave a message, either what you like about it, what you would like to see more of, we're going to get two tickets for the Tacoma Rainiers baseball game on June 29th. They're box seats. You get a buffet dinner, complimentary parking, and complimentary beverages. And you also get great stories from Chester, which really makes it a great night. I love it. So, yeah, if you would call 425, we're talking to listeners now, 
653-1166 and just give us some pointers on what we can do better, what we what you'd like to listen to. That's what we'd like to do. So let's get with the show. My first segment is Jim French from Cairo Radio in the 1990s on Voices of Experience coming up right now. Jim France became a fixture on Seattle radio the year Dwight D. Eisenhower was elected to his first term as president. Jim's award-winning Cairo Mystery Playhouse is still heard on Cairo Saturday and Sunday nights between 9 and 10 p.m. Good morning, Jim, and welcome to Profiles of Experience. When did you know that you wanted to have a career in broadcasting? Believe it or not, from the time I was eight years old, I found radio to be magic, and I wanted to be a radio announcer. Did you have a particular personality that inspired you? Uh, not at that early age. Later on, a disc jockey at a local station in Pasadena, California, became my mentor, and I unconsciously copied every mannerism he had until the rest of the announcers on the staff began to rib him and me. But uh, he was such a help to me, I guess, that I naturally copied him. What um, criteria, Jim, do you use when deciding on who is going to be a guest on your show? I've always felt that it had to be somebody with some relevance to local topics or national topics that were in the news, or it had to be a major personality. That ruled out first-time authors of novels and so forth. What then makes a successful interview generally, and do you have a couple of favorite interviews that you could share with the audience specifically? What makes a successful interview is one in which the interviewee tells a story. And as far as a favorite interview, I've had many. Uh, it's hard to pin down one that would be a, a special favorite of mine. Do you like the direction that radio is headed now? Well, tell me what direction radio is headed, and I'll tell you whether I like it. Well, how about talk radio, consolidation of stations? Well, talk radio is, is no longer a direction. It's a destination, and people are beginning to defect from talk radio little by little. And as that shatters, as does every fad, every trend finally disintegrates in favor of some other direction, uh, I don't know where it's going as far as uh, the consolidation of stations is concerned. I think this is a bad thing simply because I think that it gives too much latitude, too much possibility of control of the media in the hands of one organization. What are the career opportunities were you interested in pursuing if it wasn't radio? Well, at the outset, none. I'll... I will say that I considered uh, three other things. One was music. I'm a pianist. Uh, the, another one was uh, automotive styling. I, automotive styling? Yeah, I was offered a job in Detroit by the Chrysler Corporation back in the 1950s, and I had to make a major decision as to whether I wanted to quit radio and go back there for about the same money I was making here or pursue radio, and I'm glad I stayed with you. Just uh, one final question, Jim. Are you optimistic about the future of this country? Certainly. Certainly. I, I have a lot of faith in the uh, basic common sense of individuals. You see, the basic ordinary person never captures a headline, doesn't get in the news. It's common sense that will run the country. Jim French, thank you very much for spending time in Profiles of Experience. You're welcome. Where would you love to live? Have you explored today's market? When I spoke with Heather Ramos... 
she instantly put me at ease. I'm Coach Debbie from Story U, and I recommend Heather to first-time buyers or dream home shoppers and everyone in between. Let Heather's experience lead you to a perfect location and style and all within your budget. Contact Heather Ramos at Keller Williams. That's Heather Ramos at KW.com. Award-winning author Angie Thomas has joined us, and she is the author of two books written over the last several years. The first book was written in 2017, and it's called The Hate You Give. Her most recent book, Concrete Rose, was set 17 years before The Hate You Give was written. The Hate You Give follows Star Carter, who was the only witness to a police shooting. Concrete Rose is set 17 years before those events, and The Hate You Give follows the life of Maverick Carter, the father of the star. So let's get with the interview before I confuse you and myself any further with Angie. To that end, I'd just like to know a little bit more about your background and, um, you know, where you grew up and and, uh, what inspired you to write. Well, yeah, so I grew up um, in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, Mississippi is known for a lot of writers, but growing up, I didn't know that I could be a writer because all the writers from Mississippi were either old, white, or dead, and I was neither of those things. So (laughs) I didn't realize that someone like me could be a writer. I grew up in a neighborhood where, you know, you weren't, I didn't see authors a lot. Um, I, I grew up in a neighborhood that was known for all the wrong reasons. And it, but books were an escape for me. Books gave me some refuge. And as I got older, I realized I love storytelling. I love books. I see how books have helped me. Maybe I can do that for someone else. So I decided to become a, become a writer. And I studied creative writing in college. Um, that's what I got my degree in. So it worked out perfectly. Was there any particular book that inspired you? Yeah, the book that inspired me the most would probably have to be Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry by Mildred B. Taylor. It was my first time reading a book about a black girl in Mississippi, and there I was, a black girl in Mississippi. Um, that book has stayed with me for decades now, and I even I was inspired by it um, to write The Family and The Hate You Give, and specifically I got the name Maverick um, from Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. So that book has had a lasting impact on me. Well, guess what? You just answered my next question because I was going to ask what was the inspiration for The Hate You Give, and I think you just gave that. Well, it goes a little further than that. I first got the idea when I was in college. I was a lot like Star, um, living in a mostly black, poor neighborhood and attending a mostly white, private, upper-class school and being two different people in two very different worlds. Um, But while I was there, a young man named Oscar Grant lost his life in Oakland, California. And although I didn't know him personally, I took what happened to him very personally. Um, His death was caught on tape. The video was all on the Internet. Um, It was played on the news. And I was angry and hurt and frustrated that this young man was killed in the manner that he was. But at my school, my classmates either didn't care or they justified why his death was okay. And I was so angry and hurt and frustrated. I didn't know what to do to make them understand, so... I decided I was going to write, and I wrote a short story about a boy named Khalil, who was a lot like Oscar Grant, and a girl named Star, who navigated two worlds like me. And that's essentially how the Hate Give came about. In the book, uh, there's uh, the Carter family, and that's kind of what the background goes around, and you tell your story. 
Was there a family that you modeled that after? Like I was mentioning, the family um, in Rolos Thunder Hear My Cry, and then families that I know personally, families that I see every day, families that actually exist that we just don't talk about nearly enough. Um, I see these families who choose to live in a neighborhood like Garden Heights on purpose because they want to be there to um, create positive change. They care about the community so much and they want to be there and they want to be involved. Um, so I know those families. I see them all the time and, and they, they exist. We just don't see them nearly enough. So you've been really busy the last five years because you've had a couple of books out. You had The Hate You Give and now you have another one coming out called Concrete Rose. And that's kind of a, from what I understand, a prequel to The Hate You Give. Is that correct? Yes. Um, Concrete Rose follows Maverick, the dad, and the hate you give. But in Concrete Rose, he's a 17-year-old kid who's still figuring things out, still trying to figure out what it means to be a man and the kind of man he wants to be. Um, And he just found out he's a father for the first time. And so he's navigating young fatherhood and and just life in general in this community um, and, and, and trying to figure out the person he wants to be ultimately. So what would you hope in your goal in your mind that people would take away from these books that you've written when it's said and done? Well, my ultimate goal is for the young people who see themselves in these characters to read these books and to walk away knowing not only do they do their lives matter, but their voices matter, their dreams, their hopes, their aspirations, that all matters. I hope they walk away feeling empowered. And then I hope other people use these books and get a sliding glass door and a window into lives unlike their own, and they start looking at the real mavericks of the world, the real stars of the world, with a new perspective, with a new lens. Um, I hope that it helps them humanize these young people even more so. We're still at the point of asking people to humanize black boys and black girls, Um, and I hope that my books help with that. I hope that my books make them look at the real-life stars and mavericks in a different light. When you uh, look back over, gosh, the last decade or so, when you mentioned the Oakland shooting, and unfortunately I can't say that I know which one that was because there have been so many <laughs> since then. And I guess my question yeah. to you is, Are you get a lot of feedback, you probably get a lot of very positive feedback, and you maybe get some hate mail or feedback But are you optimistic that the United States, let's say the white people, are starting to understand this frustration that you have? I think more people are starting to listen. I think more people are starting to take the time to listen. I think books play a huge role in that and film and television play a huge role in that. But I think we all play a role in that in having these conversations, sharing our perspectives, sharing our lived experiences. I've had so many white readers, white parents who've read my books, and they're like, oh, wow. I didn't know black parents had this conversation with their kids about what to do if you're pulled over by a pulled over by a police officer. I didn't know this was even a conversation to be had. And so them realizing that makes them realize, oh, wow, there are two different Americas here at play. Um, I need to start listening and learning and, and hearing these experiences a bit more to get a better understanding. So I think we're in a in an interesting time right now where there are people who do want to listen and do want to understand. And then we have people who are pushing back against the listening and the understanding, but we are deficient on empathy and, and listening and understanding and taking time to try to understand that's all a part of empathy. And that's what books play a role in doing. So while there is pushback, there's still a whole lot of people who are pushing forward. 
Sure. So, I mean, it's like the two steps forward, one step back scenario, which is a shame. It has to go through that process. But from what I'm hearing you saying, you are optimistic that, again, white America is starting to understand somewhat more than the past of what the black experience has been in this country. I am. I am. And I think there will be more understanding as more black creatives are given the opportunities to tell our stories, because that's where it starts. It starts with the books. It starts with the black directors and screenwriters and and television showrunners. It starts with that so that we can get all of our experiences or as many of our experiences out there for the world to see as possible. Well, speaking of uh, movies, a couple of your efforts have are turning into movies and haven't made into movies. Yes, yes. The Hate You Give was adapted into a film back in 2018, and now my second novel, On the Come Up, has been adapted into a movie, and it's set to come out later this year. I'm excited about that. Um, I got to be a producer on that one this time around. So it's going to allow my stories to reach more people, um, and hopefully sooner than later we will have some development with Concrete Rose, either as a movie or as a TV show. But it's important to reach people through those mediums as well, and not just through books. Um, because not everybody likes to read, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, it's a great way. They're a great way to put these stories in front of more people. So what's the uh, your life been like for the last five years? Oh, it's been, it's been a definite change. It's definitely changed, but it's been a great five years now. Um, I've had the privilege of meeting readers all around the world who have connected with my books in some sort of way, who read them, who support them. Um, and for me, that's that's a blessing. That's an honor. It's an honor to know that people not only spend their money, but take the time and listen to the audiobook or sit down and read the book. To take that time to do that, that means a lot to me. But being able to meet these readers and travel the world and go to these different places, great. It's been amazing. Um, but also, it's shown me the impact that books can have on people, and it showed me the importance of books. So it's just energized me more to write more books for young people, especially that show them how amazing they are and and hopefully make an investment in the future. There are some book banning efforts underway in the country and some parts of the country remain nameless for now, but certainly it is coming up. And I thought I'd never hear of that in America. We write about in history in Nazi Germany, but of course that will never happen here. But we see kind of a rise in that type of mindset. Are you concerned about that? I am and I am not. It's been ha- The reason I'm not is, is because, for one, it's been happening since The Hate You Give came out. Um, the Hate You Give has been one of the top ten most banned books since 2017. So nothing, it doesn't surprise me. I think what's happening now is we're seeing it more widespread and more books are being pulled into the banning. Um, what the, What encourages me, though, is that there are still so many young people who are speaking up for these books, and then there are so many parents who are realizing, oh, snap, I need to start going to these meetings and speaking up because these books have had a positive impact on my child. We need more of these types of books available. I need to speak up for them. So while there are the naysayers, there's still a whole lot of supporters. There's still a whole lot of people out there who recognize the importance and the power of diverse literature and diverse perspectives and we'll keep fighting to make sure that these books are available for young people. I missed something. I didn't miss it, but I didn't want to interrupt you. But you said in the beginning of this uh, answer to this question that The Hate You Give has been banned in some places. Where where has that happened? 
Well, it first one of the first times I was aware of it was in a suburb outside of Houston, Texas, back in 2017. Um, the book was pulled from shelves, and it became a huge deal um, in one of the school districts there. But the young people there fought for it to get back on the shelves. In fact, there was one young lady who she went before the school board herself. She was a sophomore, 15 years old, went before the school board herself, young black woman, and told them, this book means so much to me. This is the impact it's had on me. You cannot take it off the shelves. And they put the book back. So it's been happening. This is not, you know, this is not new. And but it but what is new is the new voices that are getting in on the conversation. So again, it's not new. It's just loud right now. Hmm. And this comes from a lot of the people who preach freedom of speech, and that's got to be my speech oh, yeah. that's free, but uh, not yours. Oh yeah, no. And it's funny to me. It's a lot of the same people who want to say that kids nowadays are too soft, but they don't want their children feeling even the slightest discomfort when reading a book. Interesting to me. <laughs> yeah, really. I, I got to say, it's, it's, it's head scratching. So, Angie, we're about out of time. And I uh, just want to ask you before you go, anything else before we leave you today? Well, I would say since we are talking about book bannings and all of this, I mean, what's the best way to push back on that? Um, Go out and support these novels. Pick them up at your bookstore. Request them at your library if you can't afford to buy them. Um, the best way to help get more diverse literature out there is to support the diverse literature that's already out there. So, And if you're a parent and you've read these books and you know that they mean something to your child, go to these school board meetings as well and make yourself heard. That's the only way you can push back. That's the only way we have a fighting chance is if we make ourselves heard and if, if we support these books and, and give them the voices that they need. So uh, when are you running for U.S. Senator from Georgia? <laughs> You know, I just moved here, so I probably can't do that anytime soon. Um, politics are not my thing. My thing is investing in the future politics of this country by investing in the future leaders of this country. So, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer that the young people who read my books now can become can become the future presidents and the future senators, and the impact I have on them now will impact how they lead. So that's the only way, that's the closest I'm going to get to running for any type of office is writing for the future senators and Congress people. All right. Well, let me know if you change your mind. I will make a contribution for sure. <laughs> you got I, me going. I Angie, thank you it. so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. My thanks to Angie Thomas. The Hit You Give and Concrete Rose are both out on paperback. Just Google Angie Thomas. Now, during the interview, I didn't recall when she mentioned her inspiration and that was the shooting death of Oscar Grant, an event that took place in Oakland. Now, in the back of my mind, I thought I had some memory of that, but I thought it took place on BART, which it did, but it was in San Francisco, and uh, I wasn't uh, clear on that. But when she said Oakland, I figured it may be another incident. But just a quick review, the shooting took place New Year's Day, 2009. There was a fight on the train, the police were called and started making arrests. The officer threw Grant on the ground and another fired a shot that killed Oscar. The officer was convicted of second-degree manslaughter and served approximately two years in prison. Now back to the books. They are both on paperback and available. All you need to do, again, is Google Angie Thomas, and that's A-N-G-I-E Thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S. And by the way, The Hit You Give 
has been made into a movie. Get on board. The water is open. It's time to go boating and fishing and leave stress in our wake. Feel the wind as we ride and a fish on the line. Reel in our first catch and feel the sun at our backs. It's get out on the water season. It's time to get on board. Find out where to get on board near you. Visit Take Me Fishing and Discover Boating to learn more. And please recreate responsibly. Get on board. Get on board. Welcome to this edition to Voices in History. This time frame covers between June 6th and 10th. On June 6th, 1944, Supreme Allied Commander General Dwight D. Eisenhower gives the go-ahead for the largest amphibious military operation in history called Operation Overload. The Allied invasion of Northern France, more commonly known as D-Day, when 18,000 British and American parachutists were already on the ground and an additional 13,000 aircraft were mobilized to provide air cover and support for the invasion. On June 6, 1971, the Ed Sullivan Show airs for the last time. On June 8, 1849, Chief Seattle dies near the city named after him. And I think we're familiar with that city. It was 13 years after American settlers founded this city, or at least they think they founded the city. I think some other people have different ideas on that, but uh, they named the city after Chief Seattle. On June 9, 1954, George Orwell's 1984 book is published. Have you no sense of decency? That's the question Joseph Welch, special counsel for the U.S. Army, asked Senator Joe McCarthy during hearings on whether communism had infiltrated the U.S. Armed Forces. This verbal confrontation occurred on June 9, 1954, and marked the end of McCarthy's power. On June 10, 1752, Benjamin Franklin flies a kite during a thunderstorm. An ambient electrical charge in a latent jar enabled him to demonstrate the connection between lightning and electricity. And on June 10, 2007, the last episode of The Sopranos airs. It's really hard to believe that that was 15 years ago, don't you think? There are two outs in the bottom of the ninth. Base is loaded. The Seattle Mariners trail the L.A. Dodgers by three runs in Game 7 of the World Series. Who would you rather see step up to the plate? Mitch Hanniger or a promising but yet untested player just called up from the minors? If Mitch Hanniger is your choice, that means experience is important to you. That's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. Topics explored including public affairs, self-employment, travel, health and fitness, history, and Adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. Welcome 
to this edition of Spotlight on Success. I'm Eric Krima. In studio with me via Zoom is Sergeant Darren Wright. Uh, Sergeant Darren Wright is assigned to the Government and Media Relations Division as the HQ Public Information Officer for Washington State Patrol. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Sergeant Wright. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Glad to be here. I understand you've been with Washington State Patrol for about 31 years? Yes, 31 years, uh, almost off probation, so... <laughs> a long time. <laughs> that's a long probation. No, that's a long time. Congratulations on the career, and thank you and, and your team for the service. We really appreciate it. Thank you. You know, part of making the roads safer, and I think we've all seen it as drivers, is just securing loads. I know that's a big push right now for Washington State Patrol because it can lead to injuries, including deaths and certainly accidents. So maybe we can talk first about your role with Washington State Patrol briefly, and then let's start talking about why it's so important to secure your load when you're when you're heading out there on the highways. Yes. So uh, the Washington State Patrol has partnered with the Department of Ecology, uh, the Department of Transportation, and the Traffic Safety Commission to uh, increase awareness and convince people and uh, get people to secure their loads. Uh, my role uh, primarily is getting the message out uh, so that my partners who are still working the road uh, can uh, educate the people and have less traffic stops and have less need to respond to collisions. We've already had two fatalities in the state of Washington this year at mm. directly resulting from uh, things that have been lost from another vehicle, uh, failure to secure loads. So. Yeah, and those certainly make the headlines because of how tragic it is. And it's just a moment of really taking time, right? Take the, the extra effort to make sure that you've tied down that load and you've tarped it. That's exactly it. Just take that extra moment to secure that load. Uh, you know, even, you know, there's things that people moving, you don't want to lose your, your valuables and mm-hmm. your, your items that you're moving to. But even going to the transfer station, you know, the it's junk and you may not care about it, but you need to care about the people that are behind you. You know, you may not think that something falling out of a vehicle can be that dangerous, but if you're riding a motorcycle behind you, it being struck by an item or having a run over an item can be very dangerous and it is uh, at times fatal. Absolutely. I, I've taken things, being a homeowner, it seems like I go to the transfer station probably three to five times a year. And I've been tempted too, to be honest with you, thinking, well, you know, it's pretty dang secure. I don't think I need to tie the extra lines on there or, or ah, I don't need to tarp it. But I always do stop myself because I do think of those more tragic times when you hear on the news or see on the news um, that someone has uh, been killed or, or injured or, you know what, just quite frankly, it doesn't look very good along the, the highway ways and byways is litter. Exactly it. And and we hope everybody has the same mindset as you have, that you have that second thought and you rethink it and you do put those extra straps or a cargo net or something on there. Because uh, like you said, if it doesn't cause a collision, it still just looks horrible. We have a beautiful state here in Washington and uh, we want to keep it that way. We want to keep that litter uh, free and uh, not have to have it picked up. Uh, 12 million pounds of litter a year is either tossed or blown on the roadways of our state. And that's just so much. It can be prevented if we just secure those loads. Absolutely. Uh, and do you think that's a major culprit, unsecured loads, as to the, the, the litter that we see on the highways? Well, they figure 40% of that uh, 12 million, so almost 5 million pounds, is, wow. is directly resulted from things either blowing out of the back of pickup trucks or other trucks or uh, failed to secure load uh, items that uh, have fallen out of vehicles. Now, should you be driving on uh, a highway, let's say, or a road, and you see um, you see something that's just really egregious, uh, maybe even see things fall off of a truck, uh, should you call Washington State Patrol? Yes, 911. 
okay. that is that definitely rates a 911 call. And if it does, go, if it goes to a local center, uh, they'll transfer it to the state patrol if it's appropriate for us on the highways. Um, and many of the calls that come from cell towers that pinpoint you toward the highway go directly to the state patrol anyway. So uh, either way, 911, call in, let them know that, uh, get a, as good a description as you can of the vehicle and a license plate if available. And then we'll uh, we'll do our best to uh, do something about that. Yeah. And then let the authorities take it from there. Uh, you know, all too often you hear about people trying to take the law into their own hands or, or at least to get up alongside a vehicle and let them know through various ways what they think about their driving or their, in this case, an unsecured load. Don't go down that road. Let the uh, let the professionals handle it. Absolutely. Do not engage in any kind of road rage or, or any kind of contact with these people because it could escalate into a road rage. And, uh, you know, we've had instances where people will pull a gun or even shoot uh, rounds uh, as a result of somebody coming up beside him like that uh, to express their opinion. So please do not engage. Call us and let us handle that. We're trained to do that and um, have the equipment and, and the training to be able to handle those situations. Going back to the litter, I imagine it's very expensive uh, to, to when you think of just the, the hundreds of miles of highway and, and roads that we have here, to clean it up. Absolutely. Uh, the Department of Transportation spends about $4 million a year cleaning up the state roads, and uh, the Department of Ecology spends another $4.5 million on uh, pickup efforts every year. So uh, that's what they're doing so far. And so if we can reduce that, we can have put that money to better usage in other places. But uh, I mean, it needs to be done. But if we can reduce the amount of litter that's on the roads by securing our loads, then we can uh, not have to spend that money in that direction. It's interesting the Department of Ecology is involved. I would imagine that's because of not just the unsightliness of litter, but what things like maybe liquids can do if they make it into streams or or just into the soil. Yes, uh, a lot of these uh, bits of litter and, and items contain hazardous chemicals uh, or other items that could be harmful to our ecology and our uh, environment. So, you know, paint paint thinners, acetones, you know, things like that that people take into the transfer station and other items like that uh, can be very damaging to our environment and the ecology. So, yeah, they have a very big part in this uh, and they, uh, it's a big concern for them. And now uh, they're doing a great job trying to prevent it and uh, change the behavior of people to uh, to make this uh, a better place to be. Well, I appreciate your efforts to get the word out and certainly your team in the Department of Ecology and, of course, Washington State Patrol. Uh, but sometimes people just don't get it. Uh, they need to be fined. <laughs> you know, they, they, they need to be pulled over and fined. Is there going to be some sort of an emphasis now through Washington State Patrol to, to make this more of a higher priority as, uh, as we get into summertime here? Yes, as a matter of fact, there is. So June 6th is National Security Load Day. Uh, we want everybody to be thinking about it on that day. We want people to secure their loads every day. But for three consecutive weekends, starting on June 10th and ending on June 26th, uh, the Washington State Patrol is going to be having emphasis patrols specifically looking for uh, load securement violations. So we're going to be out there looking for that, educating people, and when needed, uh, giving people citations for the egregious ones, like you mentioned. Now, are we just talking, you know, five, ten dollars, or or these fines can they go upwards? Uh, fines can be up to five thousand dollars. Oh my goodness! Okay. Um, and so, especially things like uh, when somebody throws a lit cigarette out the window, that's when it really gets expensive. It's very dangerous. Uh, and if somebody gets hurt or uh, killed as a result of uh, failed secure load or allowed allowing escape of load. Uh, you could face criminal charges. There's some misdemeanor charges out there that could be charged if somebody does get hurt as a result of that. My goodness, yeah. Uh, well, I didn't realize those fines were that large, but as you as you talk about it, I can see why. 
especially last year, it seemed like I've, I saw a ton of areas that were burned along the highway, as you say, probably th- people throwing a cigarette out. Uh, it's just getting so dry here during the summertime that that alone creates a lot of damage. Yes, it does. You know, people that have that habit to do that, they do it all the time. And they travel to like eastern Washington where wildfires is a really huge problem. Oftentimes that is the start. It's somebody threw a cigarette out the window in a dry grass and uh, starts a major wildfire, which costs, you know, the state people, uh, state a lot of money to fight those fires, mm-hmm. cost people some lives and people's properties. They lose their homes uh, as a result. So uh, it's very, very dangerous to throw a lit cigarette out the window. Absolutely. And the smoke alone coming over the road, it's like a fog bank. Yes. And which creates more danger to the drivers too. Absolutely. So uh, just a trickle effect that uh, kind of really expounds out and makes it dangerous. Now, I personally use a tarp and, and bungees and, and, and rope when I'm securing the load before I go to, say, the transfer station or, or when I go to uh, take, we have an area where we're able to take branches and, and leaves and things like that, and they, they mulch it up. But uh, anyway, are there easier methods, uh, maybe for someone who only you know does that once a year, maybe every other year, uh, that just makes it easier on them to, to get that load secured? Well, if it's a lot of small, loose items, a tarp works great. Tarp it over and then secure that tarp down over the top. Cargo nets are a great item. Uh, They stretch out and can cover a lot of different items. Those are good for a lot of things. But if you have a large item, larger items need to have their own strap or rope or securement device on them to make sure that they stay in place. You know, it's just shifting. A large item shifting in a smaller vehicle could cause the vehicle to lose control. So it doesn't even have to fall out of the vehicle to be dangerous. Um, if it shifts correctly and throws the vehicle out of alignment there, it can, it can actually throw you into a skid or a spin uh, and then cause another crash and uh, could hurt themselves or hurt somebody else. And definitely watch your speed. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, you always watch the speed. Watch the speed. I see too much of that happening. Uh, some information that your department sent me in preparation for this interview uh, was about just the amount of a safety hazard this can become, including deaths and injuries. Talk about those numbers because it's uh, it's it's a very unfortunate. Yeah. Nationally, according to the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, uh, in 2019, road debris caused 739 deaths in the United States, 17,000, over 17,000 injuries, and um, there were almost 90,000 property damage crashes. That's nationally. And in in Washington alone, there were 300 traffic crashes uh, with 30 injuries uh, in 2021. And as I said earlier, we've already had two deaths this year Mm. as a result of that. So it's just, it is very dangerous and it affects a lot of lives. And really the bottom line is you being the operator of that vehicle, that's your responsibility. Absolutely. You have the responsibility to make sure that everything in that vehicle and that's placed in that vehicle is secure and safe to be traveling down the roadway. So if it comes out or moves or uh, is failed secured, it is the responsibility of the driver. Sergeant Wright, thank you so much for your time today, and I hope people heed your words. All my best to you and the efforts of uh, your agencies, including uh, the State Patrol as well. Uh, Be safe out there, and again, just thank you for your service. Well, thank you for the time today and uh, helping us spread this message. It's very important. Please pass this message along, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for listening to this edition of Spotlight on Success. Be sure to tune in next week for another interesting conversation. Until then, best to you. Kelly Hargrave has joined us 
And Kelly is the author of a book called Can't Get Enough Shark Stuff. So if you have a child or grandchild, this may be an interesting book for them to peruse. Uh, it addresses some of the myths and realities about sharks, and it comes with some exciting games, hands-on activities, and even shark jokes. Here's one of them. What do young sharks play at recess? Are you ready? Tide and seek. Okay, I promise that's the last one. So let's get to it. The first thing that I wanted to know is where does Kelly live? Yes, I'm in Colorado. You don't have a huge shark problem in Colorado, but you're fascinated by sharks. <laughs> no. Oh, absolutely, yes. We're in a, I'm in a landlocked state, so, you know, the most water uh, around here is probably the glass that I'm drinking right now. <laughs> so it's real easy for you to say not to fear sharks, but you're in the middle of Colorado. Yes, yeah, I know. Not a fair statement, right? But I did grow up on the East Coast. So I grew up in Virginia, and I, I did grow up going to um, the beaches of Virginia and North Carolina. So very used to sometimes seeing that alarming uh, news story of a great white, you know, showing up on the coast. Um, so, yeah, so I am used to it. And I, I know that sharks are a kid's favorite perennial character that we like to discuss. And I, I write kids' books on all sorts of topics. So this was a topic that I was really interested in because I feel like we all have kind of this uh, same idea of what we think a shark is, but there's so much more to them. There are over 500 species. So there's a lot to discover here. Do we fear sharks unnecessarily? I think that's a, I think that's the true statement. You know, we're not part of their natural diet. You know, sharks aren't out there hunting for humans. So any shark attacks that happen are usually, you know, they're few and far between. Um, you know, there, there are actually only a few hundred that happen and only maybe one to five deaths that happen each year. Um, usually we're just not anywhere near sharks. And with over 500 species, you know, there's so many different kinds that aren't even known for um, attacking humans at all. They're very small or doing their own thing so far from coast in the deep ocean. So it really runs the gamut um, as far as uh, what a scary shark is versus, you know, what the majority of sharks are like. If your picture is accurate, I don't think you were alive when the movie Jaws came out in the 1970s. And um, I'm sure you're familiar with the movie, Steven Spielberg, which I consider to be the greatest filmmaker of all time. However, I've also read and heard that that movie really added to the fear of sharks. Is there some accuracy to that? It definitely added to the fear of sharks. You know, I think we all like attention-grabbing um, things. And sharks are kind of, they're one of the most unique-looking um, creatures on our planet, for sure. And whenever you see a picture or a movie about a shark, it's always, you know, their big jaws with some flesh hanging out. Um, but usually, you know, that's, that's just one type of shark. Um, so yes, those ones can be a little scary, but we don't normally come across them. And most of the times, actually, when, you know, things like great white fish are um, approached by scientists or researchers, a lot of times they don't really even care about them. You know, they're on to the things that they actually know and are good at hunting. You know, we're kind of unfamiliar to them. So most of the times they kind of ignore us. What are sharks afraid of? Well, you know, there are some bigger sharks like the great white and the hammerhead and the tiger sharks that actually feed on smaller sharks. So sharks are afraid of sharks. <laughs> um, but also in recent years, we found some research that killer whales have actually been known to take down a few great whites. Now, this is something that we're still doing research on because we know the great white is kind of the king of the ocean and nothing can bring it down. But there has been the occasional killer whale that has been successful at bringing down the great white. So that is the, the one animal out there that might really give them some trouble. But other than that, 
um, they're still the king of the ocean. What do they do that really benefits us? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, as an apex predator, you know, no matter what part of the food chain you're in, apex predators, everything that they do trickles down. So it has a great effect on every type of habitat and ecosystem um, in the ocean. But they're also big holders of carbon. You know, they themselves are, hold carbon within them, but they also help regulate carbon within um, the ocean itself. You know, if we get too much carbon into the air, that contributes to global warming, which we're trying to slow down. So sharks actually play an important part on managing um, seagrass. And it's a plant that's underwater that sea turtles like to eat. And sea turtles, if they could, they'd be munching on that all the time. But the seagrass holds lots of carbon. And so if they concentrated that eating in one area, we, you know, they would destroy and so much carbon would go up into the atmosphere. So sharks are predators of sea turtles. So they'll go through the seagrass and meander through and they'll kind of help spread the love of the sea turtles because sea turtles are scared of, of sharks. So that's just one of the ways that they kind of help balance the ecosystem and how that impacts our greater planet. You mentioned global warming. It's affected, it seems, everything. How has it affected sharks so far? The thing, I guess one thing that I want to point out about sharks is that um, over 100 million sharks are killed um, every single year, unfortunately, by humans. Um, a lot of this has to do with overfishing. Um, but, you know, sharks are big holders of carbon. And so when we kill sharks, um, that's releasing a lot more carbon into the air. But then that's also... Um, taking away important vessels under the water that could be holding that carbon in. So that's, you know, that's one of the ways um, that they're impacting that. What is the fascination of children with sharks? Oh, man. Well, I just think that they're such unique looking creatures and they're so different from what we have on land. Of course, those big old teeth are like, how can something actually have a mouth like that? It's incredible. I think you see these sharks and they just can do so much more than what a human can do. Um, but they're also, you know, I like to think that they're big and strong and brave and fearless. And some kids can kind of identify with that and kind of look up to that in a way. You know, they 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 move through the, the ocean with such determination and, and fiercity. Um, and I think that that's, that's something that we could all use a little bit of. What specifically came about your interest in sharks? I think knowing that they're a kid's favorite. And they have been covered, you know, in a lot of books. Of course, a lot have covered sharks before but i think knowing that there's such a variety of sharks you know i was just so amazed and so in love i fell in so in love with sharks researching and talking to shark specialists for this book because there's such a variety and so many different characteristics they look different they act different each one has something different and cool to offer so i really really had a good time researching that and bringing those those the most fun things to light for kids to engage with, to keep them reading, to keep them learning, and, and, and really feeling invested in protecting sharks. What other uh, children's books have you written? Oh, well, I've written quite a few with National Geographic, a lot of them. Um, this has been the first one that actually really kind of spans or dives into one specific topic. But as you know, um, National Geographic is really great at bringing a variety of topics to kids. Um, I've worked on their Weird But True series, which is a fan, you know, a kid's favorite, where we just cover all sorts of things like travel and technology, robots, space, animals. And we put it all into one book, but in really bite-sized pieces that just blow their minds. So those are the type of books that I've worked on before. And I actually do have another one that will be coming out with them called The Big Book of Wow that's coming out in November, which will be really exciting and cover some of those topics that I just mentioned. Um, so, yeah. Well, good for you. Before I let you go, um, what uh, brought your passion about writing? Where did that begin? Oh, gosh. Well, I've been writing um, for a really long time. I mean, when I was a kid, I was an avid journaler. Um, I just wrote about everything I saw and felt 
Um, and I really, you know, I really just enjoy using my imagination. And I think specifically when it comes to nonfiction, it's just been so amazing to be able to learn so much that's um, almost fantastical about our own world. And that's why sharks are so cool, because they're kind of, I think that they're the closest thing we have on this planet to superheroes. They just have all these amazing um, attributes to them. And just the, the more time you spend on something, the cooler they become, you know. And I think you can say that about pretty much anything on our planet. Just take a closer look and you'll be surprised what you learn. And I really like to inspire that in kids. Spoken like a true journalist. Thank you, Kelly, for your time. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. You too. Bye now. Okay, I lied. I said the shark joke that I told at the beginning of the interview, which is in this book, would be my only joke. Well, I just can't help myself. Here's the second joke. What is the shark's favorite country? Thinking hard about this, are you ready? Finland. And again, my thanks to Kelly Hargrave for the jokes. You can blame her, not me. I just read the jokes. So those are Kelly's jokes or someone else's with National Geographic. The book, again, is called Can't Get Enough Shark Stuff. All you need to do is Google Kelly Hargrave, and that's spelled H-A-R-G-R-A-V-E, and you can find out how you can get a copy of the book. And she is also an author of a number of other children's books. One more time, Kelly Hargrave, H-A-R-G-R-A-V-E. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, and along with Eric Crema, we thank you for joining us today. Eric, what do you have for next week? Well, that's actually a mystery, too. So I'm working on that as we speak. I've got a couple of good ideas, so I guess we'll just have to have you tune in and listen. Okay, I'll be waiting, too. I'm going to be talking to two individuals. One is John Scholes, and he's the CEO of the Downtown Seattle Association. I visited with him about a year and a half ago, right in the darkest moments of COVID in Seattle, and nothing was open. Now we have a conversation of what's going on now. There's some great things happening in Seattle now, and it's kind of nice to have uh, an opening, grand opening party. And that's what we talk about. I'm also visiting with uh, Daniel Bergman. And he talks about mental health challenges and what he saw in his brother growing up. Fascinating story. Mm. When I called him, he uh, took the call in Brooklyn. I always asked my callers, where am I calling? And he said, in Brooklyn. And I said, I'm calling from Seattle. Well, the backdrop of this book, which I didn't know, is Seattle. So that's going to be interesting. Mm. Mentioned at the top of the show that um, we want to give a couple tickets away to a Rainier's game on June 29th, 2022. It's a 605 game, and all you need to do is call 425-653-1166, 425-653-1166 at the Voices of Experience hotline. We want to know what you think about the show, what you like, and what you would like to see. Very simple. And you want again, to be the fifth caller. The fifth caller. Thanks, Eric. So again, that number is 425 653 66 free parking you get a buffet free beverages and two box seat tickets right behind home plate so we're about out of time for today thank you for listening quote of the week we seek a free flow of information a nation that is afraid to let the people judge the truth or falsehood in an open market is a nation afraid of its own people president john fitzgerald kennedy you just received some startling news you're going to need brain surgery 
but the doctor also says your prospects for total recovery are excellent. The doctor is very confident with his prognosis. He's performed hundreds of similar surgeries during his career. Who would you choose, this doctor or another doctor who's never performed this type of surgery? If the doctor who's performed similar surgeries is your choice, then experience is important to you. That's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. Topics explored including public affairs, self-employment, travel, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. At Big Brothers Big Sisters Puget Sound, one youth, one mentor, plus one moment can unlock limitless potential. When you sign up to become a mentor with Big Brothers Big Sisters, you are matched one-on-one with a child in your community, a child with big potential. Hundreds of local youth are waiting. Be there for one of them. Big Brothers Big Sisters Puget Sound. Sign up today at MentorSeattle.org. That's MentorSeattle.org. You've been listening to the Voices of Experience Radio Network. No promotional fees have been paid by authors or other guests who appear on the show. If you have any comments or suggestions, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. And finally, experience is our best teacher.